It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, analysing the details and implications of the strikes on a Russian airbase in Crimea. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 10th of August, day 168. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor, Vinicia Rainey, and Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Sternley. I started off by asking Dom and Vinicia for the latest news from Ukraine. Shall I start quickly by talking about the sort of broad outline of the attack that we had in Crimea yesterday? And Don can give more on the sort of specifics of what weapons may or may not have been used um, in that attack. So we heard of several explosions yesterday afternoon in Crimea, um, quite away from the Russian-Ukrainian front line. Crimea obviously was taken by the Russians in 2014. Um, They claim it's their own territory now. That's disputed internationally. Um, And it happened at a military airbase, Saki Airbase. Several explosions were heard and about half an hour later, a massive explosion. And all of these blasts could be seen from a nearby beach by lots of Russian tourists. And so a lot of footage and pictures quickly started emerging. Um, And that's quite unusual because we haven't really seen ordinary Russians seeing the impact of the war firsthand so far. It's been very much kept away from them, you know, in sort of occupied parts of Ukraine and the Donetsk. Um, And this was quite extraordinary because we had all this footage of these Russians saying, what's going on? They were running away. They were scared. You could see big black clouds, uh, mushroom clouds of smoke rising into the air. Um, And there's been a lot of uncertainty around what exactly happened. Um, But it's definitely a very significant development because, as I say, very far from the Ukrainian front line. I'll let Dom talk more about what we think might have been behind it. Yeah, thanks, Tanisha. Hi, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Um, It's it's really interesting. Let's deal, first of all, with the with the what it was, because I think that's going to be fairly quick plot spoiler we don't know yet, but we can make some informed um, informed guesswork and uh, assessment there. So, um, and that, uh, then move on to what it means. So, so what was it? Russia came out very quickly and said it was it was an ammunition fire. Um, now, this is, I mean, it does sound implausible, but that, that it is not uncommon. A lot of Russian 
air bases and ammunition ammunition depots and what have you do go up in smoke with with frightening regularity if you just google russian ammunition stockpile fire or similar you'll, you'll see lots of footage from recent years because um, they don't look after their stuff i spoke to justin bronk yesterday a research fellow at um at rusi the, the royal united services institute here in london um i mean the the go-to guy you must follow him on on twitter justin bronk the go-to guy for all things air related um and he was saying, look, I mean, this does happen. These, they don't look after their kit. They don't look after their weapons, ammunition, um, fuel. They store it in the open. So it's, it's uh, subject to great fluctuations in temperature and, uh, and just as importantly, humidity. So these things do up in smoke um, with regularity. So there is a, there's a chance, a small chance. I, you know, neither he nor I think it's correct, but he was just putting it out there because it, it's wise to cover all angles. There's a chance that Russia was telling the truth and this was an ammunition fire. OK, we, we've dealt with that. We've given them the nod. I don't think that's what happened here. I think this was a Ukrainian attack. So then it comes down to, well, what, what have they got? Um, I'm, I'm in. I'm actually speaking to you now from um, Copenhagen in Denmark. I'm here with the Defence Secretary for another a military aid donor donor conference that he's hosting with the the uh, well a few other foreign ministers, I sh- uh, defence ministers. I shouldn't say just at the moment. Um, and that's why I was speaking to him on the plane about it this morning. And he said, and I do believe him. I don't think he knows either yet. But there's the possibility that it was um, some kind of repurposed missile because we just simply do not think that Ukraine has it in their arsenal at the moment to reach that kind of range. They have not got a TACOMS, the Army Tactical Missile System, the 300-kilometer uh, missile that's fired from the HIMARS vehicle. When we, when we look at the US-supplied HIMARS, we normally see six pods of, um, of missiles that can fire about 80 Ks. Well, that pod can be replaced, and from the same launch platform, um, you can fire an ATACMS, and that goes 300 Ks. And there's a lot of debate early on in the war about um, Ukraine asking for, um, or, or not, not necessarily asking for ATACMS specifically, but would, would they be given ATACMS? And, and it was thought, no, this would be a provocative step too far because they can reach far, far, far into Russia with that. So, so the US have, have publicly and repeatedly stated that they have not supplied ATACMS and have no intention of doing so. Ukraine have not pushed back on that. So we don't think there's some sort of diplomatic back channel where they actually are doing a, a deal. So very unlikely to be ATACMS. So what is it? A, a modified um, Neptune and ship missile, modified brimstone, perhaps that was gifted by by the UK. Um, some other some other modified weapon, um, Toshka, the, the ballistic missile that that is in service in Ukraine. But it would need to be there'd be there'd need to be a significant um, significant work done on all of these ammunition natures. Um, this is according to Justin Justin Bronk um, to reach that far. So so very unlikely that it was something that we've already seen in theatre. Now, Ukrainian officials yesterday were saying, well, it was, a, I can't remember the exact word, but it was like, this, was a, this was a wholly homegrown or domestic produced um, system or weapon or something like that, which, which made everyone think, well, maybe it is a new, a new ballistic missile that we've not seen yet. Um, or perhaps, and this has been in the last, uh, last hour or so, that um, reported from the US that US uh, Ukrainian officials are saying it was a special forces raid. That chimes partly with some of the speculation yesterday that it was a it was partisan activity. Um, but whatever it was, it is it is very significant. So there was some, there were some strikes on the airfield, which seems to have caused f- uh, either ignited fuel or ammunition or even the aircraft themselves, and and caused uh, caused caused a wider. Uh, wider explosion. So the, the footage that you see on social media 
largely starts with two very large mushroom clouds, but they're already against a backdrop of smoke. So something's already gone off to make the the, the people holding the, the cameras point in that direction. So we think that there's possibly some smaller strikes that then ignited fuel or ammunition that's already uh, already on the uh, on the deck there. Now, the Ukrainian Air Force has said that nine aircraft, nine Russian aircraft, uh, these are SU-34s, um, SU-30s, so multiple role fighters and the maritime variant, um, they're saying nine were destroyed. I mean, there's huge, footage you see from the scene today, there's, there's huge destruction of, of vehicles, buildings and all the rest of it. So if it's only nine, that would be surprising. I mean, they, they might be nine completely destroyed, but whether others have been put out of action temporarily, that's, that's likely. Um, and also the runway might have been put out of action temporarily or, or, if, you know, or longer because um, there was a hell of a mess. Now, why this is important is because this is um, it's a very long range strike, very accurate strike. It impacts Russia's ability to influence the Kurzon front. Um, and also you then come into the debate um, and, and not not space here to, to get into the politics of it, but. But, you know, an attack on Ukrainian soil or is it an attack on Russian soil? It depends how you how you view Crimea. Now, we know how Russia views Crimea. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the, the former president, former prime minister, head of the Russian National Security Council, he said recently that any strikes on Russian soil would be, quote, judgment day, unquote. So it will be um, extremely interesting to see how this is interpreted by Russia and, and what they do about it. Just as importantly, this was in full view of of people in Crimea. That's how we got to see a lot of the social media. So this is the first real time where this this war has has been brought to to them, not via the screens, but but in front of their face, in front of their uh, cameras, which will be all over social media and in their sort of family and friends networks and, and so on and so forth. So quite for how much longer um, Putin's able to stick to this line that this is a special military operation and not a war. Um, is anyone's guess, but this is this will have, have brought it home to people that this is this is very real and it's and it's much bigger than they might have um, perhaps been told up till now. So, a long-winded way of saying we're not entirely sure uh, what hit it, but we know what has happened. There's been a major strike by Ukraine, far, far, far behind Ru- Russian lines, um, possibly with with uh, with greater consequences that will that will come out um, in the next few days. I will. Uh, so I'm just about to go, down, go downstairs and head off to the to the defence ministry here to to, to start these um, these meetings. I'm, I'm not going to start the meetings. I'll be the one at the back shoved out the door when the, when they want to get the journalists out of the way. But um, I'll I'll report back tomorrow. We're going to have probably something in the paper for tomorrow. But report back tomorrow on um, on the uh, on this news and also on the the outcome from the donor conference. Whether or not any more any more long range rocket systems are going to be uh, donated. Uh, any other natures of ammunition, but yeah, this is this is kind of breaking news, and I will uh, I will continue to let, let you know if I hear anything in the next hour. Of course, I'll I'll jump back in and let you know, but probably more from me tomorrow. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Um, good luck today. And we look forward to reading your piece in the paper tomorrow. Um, Venetia, I know you wanted to come in on a few things there. Yeah, so as Dom started to touch on, the political aspects of this are really significant. Um, Crimea is heavily disputed territory. Um, Zelensky came out overnight saying that the war won't be over until Ukraine has recaptured Crimea. He used the word liberated. Um, We've long known that Ukraine would like to recapture Crimea um, and that it's a major point for them. You know, they've said that all of Ukraine needs to be returned to Ukraine at the end of this war. Um, That includes the parts that were taken over by separatists in the 2014 fighting. 
Whether they can actually do it is a really big question. It would be a huge undertaking. Russia has a massive naval base in Sebastopol. Um, you also have airfields, obviously, troops base there. And to get to Crimea, it's a sort of it's it's like a, it's a peninsula. It's not entirely joined by land. You have to go over a bridge, which Ukraine has been targeting recently, the Kerch Bridge. Um, it would be a massive undertaking. Um, but we know that Russia will see this as an attack on Russian territory. Now, there have been some much smaller attacks on Russian territory over the course of this war, mainly sort of strikes on ammo dumps or fuel depots just over the border into sort of Russia proper, if you like. Um, but Medvedev said just a few weeks ago that if, if, if there was any attack on Crimea, Russia would unleash, unleash what he called Judgment Day on Ukraine. Now, I don't know what that means, what more Russia can do to step up its fighting in Ukraine, short of, for example, using nuclear weapons. Um, but Russia is already heavily stretched, fighting on two fronts in the south and in the east. We know that they're struggling to find troops. We heard today that they've created a new land force um, to try and find more soldiers to fight in the war. Um, so it would be it would be a huge undertaking for them. But this certainly ups the stakes, both in real terms on the ground and in terms of what each side feels it's fighting for. Well, thank you very much, Venetia. Francis, you've been listening to all of this and characteristically mute. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yes, well, I'm very aware that um, Venetia and uh, Dom have to go, so I'm very happy to, to hold my tongue um, uh, uh, and, until they do. But yes, I think the... The the really interesting thing, just to, to talk about what Venetia was, was discussing there, um, it is this political context, because unquestionably, the the if Crimea really is, from, from a Russian perspective, non-negotiable, as it were, that it sees it as, as an integral part of Russian territory and something that it will not be willing to give up in under any circumstances, as in it would need to mobilise its entire armed forces. Remember, this is still under the feint of being a special military operation. If that's really true, then as I say, there would need to be an all-out war almost certainly. And of course, that means that we have to take very seriously the, the, the point that Venetia was just talking about, which is the nuclear question. Um, would there be a, a potential tactical nuclear strike used on Ukraine in the eventuality that it looked like Putin was going to lose Ukraine to so lose Crimea, forgive me, to to Ukraine? I think that has to be a very serious question to be asked. And indeed, I think, as we were saying um, before going live, David, it would be very interesting to do an episode pondering that very question that is the international community prepared is it asking the questions of what would actually what it would do in the situation of some sort of um, small scale if one can talk about it in those terms um, nuclear strike how would the world react has it got more would it immediately shut off all um, Russian oil and gas, for instance, would it immediately China be pressurised to sever all ties with Russia? These are all questions that no doubt are being asked in Washington and other European and other global capitals. Um, but nonetheless, I think uh, perhaps it's not being discussed enough because I think it's now getting to the stage where Russia needs to be, uh, it needs to be very made very clear to Russia what would happen if there were such a an escalation because clearly the the the, com the comments of Medvedev when he's talking about um, judgment day are an allusion to that kind of escalation and so I think we have to take that 
question very seriously. The one other thing I just wanted to talk about in relation to to Crimea is um, what Don was just alluding to briefly there. There has been this comment made in the Washington Post um, suggesting that, this is by a a Kyiv official, um, that the attack uh, carried out on Crimea is by them um, and without using a weapon provided by Washington. So this kind of partisan resistance that Don was alluding to. So uh, the military analysts as well, according to this piece in the Washington Post, believe that um, it could have been a repurposed Neptune anti-ship missile um, that's that's hit these Russian munitions. But of course, they don't confirm that. But nonetheless, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that clearly Ukraine, for strategic reasons, do not want to make it too clear that they are behind this attack explicitly. And yet it would appear that behind closed doors, there are open conversations taking place that they are responsible. And that would indeed seem to be the most likely um, consequence. But as I say, just to sort of draw all this together, it's significant because of how contested Crimea is. Obviously, it is part of Ukraine internationally that was seized uh, illegally in 2014 but nonetheless we should not underestimate the extent to which Crimea is seen as an integral part of 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 wider Russia um it is not only did it seize that territory because of the strategic military significance of Crimea but also bear in mind it has fought wars for Crimea in the past most famously the Crimean war that starts in 1854 this is something that is strategically seen as integral to 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 Russian military strength. And as a consequence, we can't treat Crimea the same, I think, as uh, as the broader front in this war. It is, unfortunately, an entity that has to be seen as slightly differently in terms of its potential ramifications for escalation. And as a consequence, I think that's why it's right to dedicate as much time of it today as, as we have so far. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. I'd just like to add, I don't, I don't know, I know Dom is still listening. I don't know if he's still there or not, but I'd like to add just two quick thoughts and see what Dom and Francis, see what you think of them. I was struck when reading and listening to listening to you guys talking about the strike of, weirdly made me think of uh, when Dom and I were, were going through Butcher and at various points in that car drive, and we got off at quite a few points and our guide sort of explained to us what was going on at various points? You know, here's there's a very famous road, for example, where a Russian tank battalion was was ambushed. And the, the man made another point at another moment where he said, "Oh, there's, um, you know, if you look over there, there's a, there's an old railway line, and we reckoned that the Russians would try and use it because they have old maps, so we mined it. And then when the Russians did try and use it, when the Russians tried to outthink the Ukrainians and go down the railway line, come in behind them, they they they, they were stopped by the mines, and it destroyed more tanks, more APCs, and killed more men. And I was struck by how almost at every single stage in this, the Ukrainian army was outthinking the Russians. They were always one step ahead. And I wonder whether this strike is another example of that. The other thing, very quickly, because I know Dom might be able to come in briefly, is that this this is another a, a big, big event that really puts the ball back into Russia's court. That previously, Ukraine has had to respond to things, has had to defend, has had to defend. And now, now it's it, this, this astonishing strike, it, as, as we've been discussing, puts the ball back in Russia's court. What are you going to do about this now, especially since they're just sending thousands and thousands of men to the south? And suddenly the air base at their back that's supposed to protect them, that's supposed to give them that air cover for any uh, incoming offensive um, is, has been struck. And we, we haven't potentially talked about the ramifications of that and what this means for uh, the, south, the southern flank of the Russian army. Um, Dom, I don't know if you want to come in briefly on any of that yeah i can come in briefly please let me know if this if you can't hear me properly i'm stood out on the street now waiting for uh, waiting for a bus 
Um, but no, I think I think you're right. I think they have outthought the Russians. Um, the Russians have had one one clear idea, as we as we know, they like to fight it's very sort of artillery led, very um, very old school, very very 20th century, just smash the place up and then move the infantry and the tanks in afterwards. And so, even though they've got a huge weight of fire, and they still have, I mean, even though the, the ammunition depots are going up in smoke, they've still got a, a lot of firepower able to do that in the Donbass and elsewhere. Um, but but if you know what your enemy is going to do, you can you can plan accordingly. So I think Ukraine has shown great resilience in putting up with the the pain that they have had to endure. But they've also been able to plan. Russia have, have shown themselves incapable of thinking um, in any any other way than 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 they we we expected them to be. So Ukraine are able to plan for these kind of attacks. If this was a special forces attack, this would have been this would have been weeks, if not months, in the planning. Um, and you're only able to. To invest that amount of capital, as in time, staff, staff planning, time and training, um, if you are very confident that you don't need those people and the and the and the brains doing all the planning for, for something else. So, if your enemy has shown what it's going to do and it's repeated that month after month after month, then it gives you the confidence to be able to say, right, let's let's plan one of these one of these attacks. And of course, this isn't just an attack for its own sake, although it, it will damage Russian morale. It will make um, every commander think. Am, am I next? Is, is my force next? Am I being targeted right now? Are there partisans watching me right now? Am I being uh, viewed by a drone, by a satellite, etc., etc.? Um, and we know the long-standing problems, uh, the morale issues that Russia have. So it will all add to that. However, what it, what, like I said, these attacks do have um, value in and of themselves, but but only so much. It's it's much better if they are part of a wider attack. And I think that's what this is. I think this is, this adds to this pressure on the Kurzon front. It takes. Um, away a large part of the air power that can be employed there and uh, and and the uh, fuel ammunition etc etc that, that could be else used elsewhere and so I think this this strike is, is not just of itself I think this is part of a wider plan and I think it is a it shows a, a, a nimbleness of thought and confidence in your people that they will carry this out to, to, to don't to devote a large part of your your very limited either um, Ballistic missile planning capability. I'm sort of whispering because I'm in the middle of a street here talking about ballistic missiles and what have you. But um, yeah, if you if you're able to devote a large part of your force to, to thinking about this for some time, then it then it, um, it it takes great confidence that they are going to deliver the goods and uh, and, and be uh, and be worth that, that the sacrifice of time. So I think this is a notable attack from Ukraine. They've also shown themselves over the last few months, Ukraine, very good at, at working out or trying to find where the edges are. I remember earlier on, MiG gate, with the, the idea that supplying, or Poland supplying MiGs to Ukraine was going to be too, too escalatory and too provocative to Russia. And that didn't happen. But we have now seen high miles going in. That's now quite normal. Uh, and, and more multiple launch rocket systems, which may or may not be um, gifted as part of the donor conference I'm, I'm attending now. But th- this is now normal currency. It used not to be. We used to think, oh, my God, that's going to be the line where Russia goes absolutely banzai. And, and that's not been the case. And Ukraine have been very good at, sh- at just sort of pushing the edges and seeing and seeing what the response is. Now, this is this is a big step. This is a big edge to push. But I think it's in that vein. It's just seeing seeing where we are, what what Russia are able to do, almost calling their bluff, but not without having given it great thought. So I think this is a very significant attack. Quite what Russia does about it, um, there'll be a lot of bombastic language, of course. But I think all they're able to do about it is just carry on firing missiles. I would expect a strike in Kyiv, I would imagine, um, in the next 24 hours. So, you know, missiles to be fired at the capital, some sort of statement like that, whatever whatever they can do, maybe something in the Black Sea, possibly against Odessa. 
Um, grain wouldn't want to be. Uh, I would have thought there'd be something against the grain shipments, some, possibly. But there'll be there'll be a response. But I don't think there'll be any um, militarily useful um, objective pushback from Russia on this because I don't think they're capable of doing that. I think this is yet again showing Ukraine able to to find the limits and work out where the where the limits of political that that political military interface where that quite lies. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to go. So thanks very much, um, Jurio. Thanks, Tom. Hope the conference goes well. And uh, yes, all the best. Look, look forward to hearing you uh, tomorrow and Friday. Um, Francis, I know you, you wanted to add to this. Well, it was just really interesting uh, what Don was saying there about the military nimbleness of Ukraine. And I think it's also important just that we, we talk about this in the context of the, of the international community and the, sort of the, 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 the momentum at this moment. We spoke at length last week uh, around this sort of issue that, of course, Ukraine have as, as, as autumn begins, as winter begins, there's going to be immense international pressure. Um, because of the cost of living crisis, which is partly facilitated by um, by what's going on in, in, in Ukraine, for there to be some sort of negotiated settlement or a slowing down of the war. All of these kind of conversations will no doubt be happening as people start to really feel the impact of this. Um, and so I think we were speaking about this in the context of Ukraine need to show now something of what they are capable of that needs to give sort of strength to the idea that, that, that they are in this not only for the long haul, but also that they have uh, the momentum with them milita- militarily. Now, of course, we've talked a lot about the counterattacks um, around Kherson, and it looks like that that is still sort of inching ahead. And when we've not sort of seen an enormous counterattack, as perhaps some people were expecting. But nonetheless, there are still some interesting developments that are taking place on that front. Um, but this, I think, should be seen as yet another example of all sort of on, on the sort of international stage of showing that this this war is not cooling down anytime soon and and, and actually it's showing that Ukraine still has the ability to to make considerable strikes here that that w- that will um that show the that it's a coup you know it's a, it's a coup what they managed to pull off the the imagery of this is very striking and no doubt it will be on numerous front pages around the world uh it's also they've been able to make a sort of uh, statements around it on social media as well, sort of making almost humorous remarks about saying that Crimea, which of course is a holiday destination for many Russians, won't make a good holiday destination this year with sort of, you know, plumes of, of smoke and then having people sort of in dressed in uh, in beachwear, sort of looking on in horror. Um, you know, these, this, this is all very much playing into um, into no doubt Ukrainian morale, but also showing the world that, that, that they are they are still capable of doing these sort of in, these attacks and actually that still as i say a momentum is 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 with them i mean i think also just something else that that, that occurs to me in, in in context of of thinking about crimea is that let's say there were some sort of um short term peace settlement i think it's highly unlikely for all of the reasons that we've talked about but let's say there was a a a ceasefire in hostilities um that was deemed to be in some way permanent um i think that it's really important to remember and the ukrainians are very sensitive to this that any negotiated settlement that russia had or any agreements that russia would sign up to wouldn't be worth the paper they would be written on unfortunately um unless there were some very very serious safeguards in place that would bring in the international community and we look at what happened on the grain exports in odessa supposedly it was meant to be that this was this was going to open up the ports and then immediately as soon as that was signed um, Russia were, were bombarding said ports now of course there have been shipments that have been able to get out but nonetheless you know it showed that, that they were 
or already bending the agreements that have been made. And of course, a huge fear from Zelensky and the Ukrainian side is, is that let's say there was some sort of pause in, 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 in things. Crimea was held on to um, under said negotiation or said settlement, then that gives them a huge launch pad for some sort of future attack in years to come when Russia has recovered its military strength and it's learned from the mistakes in the first invasion. So that is why I think Crimea is seen as such an important strategic linchpin in all of this, because they are very sensitive to the fact that it offers a huge opportunity for Russia to, to continue... Um, with a, a renewed invasion from uh, from the Black Sea. Um, and, and not only that, it, it, it gives them an impetus to keep fighting. You know, if they still have a foothold anywhere on what is seen as sovereign Ukrainian territory from a Ukrainian perspective, then uh, it, it, it gives a, another justification for this war to resume at some point. So that is why they're going for total victory now, because I think that they know that in any sort of negotiated settlement that this will be just a pause in hostilities as opposed to something long, long term. But of course, I would my, my comeback to that would be, just one last thought on this, is that does entirely depend on the safeguards that are in place, as I say, because... Clearly, there's whatever happens at the end of this war, um, it is going to be in the world's interest for, to ensure that nothing like this can happen again. And so I think it's almost certain that there would be some sort of agreement that would say that on the event of a future invasion of Ukraine, that certain powers, perhaps Turkey, perhaps Britain, perhaps even America, perhaps Poland, would, would then be obliged to militarily intervene in that case. And that of course obviously would act as a huge deterrent for Russia to make any further um, attempts on that. So in a sense, you could argue that in that context, that, that this war is everything, that whatever is settled now will be settled for a very, very long time for that reason, because of the world wanting to ensure that this can never happen again. And so for that reason, of course, it will be both in the interests of Ukraine to ensure that they seize back all of their territory. And thus, it also from the Russian perspective, it will be essential that they hold on to Crimea and hold off to as much Ukrainian territory as possible. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. Just one thing to add from me, I think, before we go to a couple more points before we finish up. Um, if Obviously, we've been following this, this invasion since pretty much since day one. And I must admit, just watching uh, Ukrainian social media, seeing how uh, my Ukrainian friends and contacts are, are reacting to this, it, it does feel like this is, as, just in terms of morale, this has been one of the, bi one of the biggest days I remember seeing. I, I mean, obviously, there was... There was um, they were extremely, extremely happy when the Russian columns north of Kiev were pushed back. Um, but as a as a self-contained event, a we, we don't know exactly what happened. But if it really was a special forces strike deep, kind of deep behind the front line, which took out uh, you know upwards of ten aircraft, um, which brought the war home for the first time to the Russian public, holidaying in in occupied Crimea. Um, I mean that that's it's one of the most it would be one of the most astonishing. Um, military adventures planned and executed by the Ukrainian armed forces so far in the war. And the reaction from the Ukrainians, you can see that the, the morale boost it's given them has been absolutely huge. Uh, there's all sorts of memes, all sorts of things being shared, which has been very interesting. So it, it has, the strike will have military value, it has strategic value, but just in terms of morale for ordinary people, it shows them that their military is capable of astonishing feats of, well, of military bravery and execution. Um, so just something I think is important to, to, to remember and think about as well. 
um, two things to talk about, Francis. I've got one question from a listener for you. But the Amnesty International row has uh, rumbled on since last week. Uh, Dutchu Kuleba has come out basically praising people from Amnesty who have quit in protest at the report. Um, I haven't really asked you your, your thoughts around this. What would you like to add to some of the discussions we've been having already on how uh, Amnesty International have been reporting on the war? Well, I would just echo the comments that have been made on this podcast and by many others very eloquently, um, far more eloquently than, I, than I'll be able to, to do, um, about just how sort of absurd really the report is in, in, when seen in the context of, of such a brutal um, occupation and invasion of Russian forces. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you cannot blame which is what this report can easily be be charged as doing, and indeed that's what how Russia are oh, certainly selling it. The Ukrainians for using, uh, I would argue, uh, the, the the best possible um, spaces in towns, which of course are likely to be civic buildings, as defensive positions. You just can't do that. At the end of the day, not when you've seen the kind of horrific crimes committed in Bucha, which I know you've been to, David, and um, and, and other such settlements in, in Ukraine. I mean, it just, you, you cannot see this in the context of moral equivalence when one side has started uh, a war. And, and, and I think that, so for that reason alone, it seems to me absurd. Um, of course, and I think it, the, I suppose the, the only additional thought I would make is that, you know, an, interne- an international entity like Amnesty International and any sort of charities, they see, and of course it's true, they see all war as, as, as evil and so will inevitably look at every um, uh, aspect, you know, everything in, in that sort of t- lens, through that lens, which is so, in a sense, they will be able to, to see it purely in terms of, well, this is bad for civilians and so it has to stop, you know, and they just see it and, and sell it in that, in that way. But, I mean, as I say... This, this sort of view doesn't really operate. It's a very idealistic view, really. At the end of the day, you know, wars are horrific and awful uh, as they are. They, they are something that are, have, have happened for a very long time and, and tragically will almost certainly continue to do so. And so you cannot live in this sort of universe of saying all war is evil and thus any kind of decision that is made strategically by whoever side, whoever is the aggressor or defender, is also morally wrong. Um, because ultimately, it's just not a feasible moral position to be in. It, it, it's, it, unfortunately, it's too complicated for that. And I think ultimately, Amnesty have been operating in a black and white space, when really this is something that inevitably, as all wars are, is, 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 is hewed with a shade of grey. Just very quickly on that, I've just seen a report in on our live blog that I didn't get to actually before we started, but the co-founder of Amnesty International Sweden has resigned over the human rights NGO's criticism of the Ukrainian army. Per Vustberg told Swedish newspaper uh, SVD, I have been a member for over 60 years. It is with a heavy heart that due to Amnesty's statements regarding the war in Ukraine, I'm ending a long and fruitful engagement. So the 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 um, shockwaves of, of, of the report are still rumbling on in Amnesty itself. So just to finish up, uh, Francis, um, obviously we do try and do uh, questions from listeners. We haven't got to many recently, but this has been quite an interesting one from uh, Stephen. Um, he asks, uh, essentially, the UN, apart from regular condemnations, they don't seem to be a major part of the conversation. Is this because any real action is impossible because of Russia's veto? Debate about the relative impotence of the UN and allusions to the League of Nations have been going on for years, but nothing appears to change. Or does it? What would be possible if Russia didn't have a veto? Could the Blue Helmets ever go into Ukraine? 
And he says, sorry, that's a, a lot of questions. But Stephen, I think, is asking one, the, the, the big sort of meta question there is, why are we not hearing uh, or seeing much action from the UN? And I think this is linked to some of the criticism that um, you know, international organisations get over their involvement in the war in Ukraine. Well, my first comment to Stephen's question would be that I think the UN would argue that they're doing a lot. Um, and <laughs> But obviously the perspective of the international community and certainly the, the Ukrainians may well be, be different to that. They would say that they're doing a lot, but that because they are sort of trying to broker a sort of peace and ensure that things uh, don't escalate, that as a consequence, they're making that a lot of their work will be happening behind closed doors. But also they're not going to be making the sign of comments that will necessarily get the headlines, you know, a, 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 a let's say a British prime minister or an American president or a Polish prime minister, you know, when they make a statement, they can say really, really what they think. They can word it very strongly, etc. An institution like the, the, the UN has to always be slightly more, um, I suppose, nuance is the wrong word, perhaps toning it down, etc. And that just doesn't draw the, the, the eye of the editor as much as, say, um, the comments of, of, of say, a, a, a democratically elected leader. So I don't think we should say that the UN is doing nothing because I say that ultimately the UN's purpose is to offer a table and a dialogue between different sides. And in that sense, it is still doing its primary role. Russia is still there and there will no doubt be immense pressure being put on them behind closed, sea, closed doors by diplomats. Bear in mind that there will be relationships between these diplomats. And so as a consequence, you can imagine that just, you know, if you and I, David, were on, let's say, you know, different sides of some kind of dispute. And but but before that, we've been very, very friendly with each other and civic with each other. Then naturally, we wouldn't just stop talking to each other overnight. I would say to you candidly, or you would say to me candidly, what the bloody hell are you doing, if you excuse my language? You know, and that is going to be happening. That is part of the purpose of the UN is for that kind of pressure. to. Be, and then, of course, that is reported back to, to Moscow or to Britain or to America, etc. So I think in that sense, you can say that, that it's the, UK, the UN is doing things. However, and this is the big however, some of their, their interventions in the conflict have been just well pretty awful um i remember when the uh, the head of the un went to kiev and some of his remarks there were incredibly sort of vague and uh, not helpful from the ukrainian perspective it's sort of this kind of crisis of leadership i think you could say which is just not very clearly articulating what the un's position is sort of almost a bit rather amateurish and making comments off the cuff that clearly haven't been well thought through that's obviously very poor um so th on that side of things you can say that they are doing things but those things that they have done they aren't necessarily doing as well as they can be so that'd be that's sort of one shaft of this i suppose another is to, to stephen's question is about what would they be capable of doing if russia didn't have a veto and i think that is a well really gets the very essence of 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 the main criticisms of of the un which is what is the point in having this institution if essentially you've got vetoes by china by russia on the security council that mean that they can do what they want just as you know obviously western powers can too um and and uh, them effectively veto any other any action against them what is the point and that i think is a fair criticism i think you would say that probably in an ideal situation that if the if the international community sought to condemn uh, the actions of another they could then act and 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 militarily intervene just as nato has done in the past uh, but of course there are huge risks 
inherent in that. And, and as a consequence, they, of course, are very, very reluctant to do so. And indeed, what would be the protocol in which you would be able to remove, say, powers from um, the UN Security Council? If Russia were to be booted out, then China would have to agree to that. That's not going to happen. Also, no power would want to get rid of the veto. So they'd be vetoing the idea of getting rid of the veto. So what is the process of, you know, practically of getting rid of it? I don't think there is one. So in a sense, it's sort of stuck in this kind of status, but it's a ter- perfectly valid criticism. And I know Dom um, is, is very much of a, of a similar opinion that the, the UN should and can should be able to do more and can be capable of doing more, but it's not really able to. So it's really, really hard to to um, pick all this. And I think that rightly questions are being asked about the UN's role. And no doubt people will be absolutely despairing of the fact that the international community has not been able to to act. My response would be that I think if um, if it weren't for the nuclear question, I think actually that regardless of what the UN wanted to do, um, regardless even of perhaps what NATO wanted to do, that there would have been certain powers, perhaps Britain, certainly um, Poland, maybe Finland, Sweden, that would have intervened in militarily in Ukraine. That, that if it were just a conventional war, then they would have get, said this is, cannot be allowed to happen on our soil. But it's because of this nuclear question that means that ultimately everything um, is put on stasis in that regard um, for obvious reasons. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Your analysis, as always, is is hugely welcome and interesting. Thank you very much, Stephen, for sending in your question. And apologies for those of you who have sent in questions that we haven't been able to get to. We do read every single one, so do do keep on doing that. We find it extremely useful. And comments and criticism are, of course, welcome as well, not just just your questions to us. Um, I think we're starting to run out of time. Francis, do you have a final thought for our listeners on what they should be thinking of uh, the next few days, potentially leading from some of the things we've discussed on the strike in Crimea today? day my, my i just want to echo something we were talking about earlier david and perhaps as i say it's something for a future podcast that we can dedicate to this theme but i do get increasingly worried um that you talk we, we've spoken today about the kind of rhetoric coming out of moscow on judgment day um crimea being attacked which as i say is, is in a different space to ukraine in terms of how it's perceived by russia i worry that there is a, a very serious risk of us all underestimating how high the stakes are for Russia in this and as a consequence that they might be willing to threaten to use or even use some sort of tactical nuclear weapon and I think that there needs to be a much clearer sense from the world of what that would mean it it would be too late for them to potentially too late for there to be some sort of um, preemptive strike um, and then the world scrambled around and saying, what are we going to do about this? Because you could have prevented it, it potentially, if you said and agreed and made very clear that if this is done, this will be the consequence. Immediately the taps would go off from uh, that is funding Russia in, in, in terms of the energy going to parts of Europe. Perhaps you could have a negotiation, as I say, from China saying that, 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 that if this is used, that this is so beyond the pale that they must sever all contact with. I mean, these are the kind of things that need to be made very, very clear. I spoke about at length with Fry- on Friday with, um, with Daniel Capiro here at The Telegraph um, on, the, on, the, on the Friday episode about this idea of strategic ambiguity and how that can be both a strength and a weakness. I think often it can be a strength, this idea that you don't show your hand and that can be very significant. But on this question, I think the world needs to be very clear what its position is because once we go down that road if a weapon were ever used as some commentators think is possible then we are we wake up to a 
different world, far more different even than the one we woke up to on February 24th. And is that a world we really want to wake up with? I think not. And as a consequence, we should be doing everything we can to avoid that possibility by making it very, very clear what the consequences of that would be to Russia. It needs to be treated as being so beyond the pale that it isn't even a, a, a commentary point. And the fact that it is, as I say, is a concern. So sorry to end on a pessimistic note, but that is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think, as I say, David, it will be something that perhaps we should dedicate some more time to. I'd certainly be interested to hear Dom's take on that. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble and Gemma Farrell.